Right. Uh, thanks for coming out, everybody. Uh, welcome to the uh, last lecture of the fifth term and third year of the Vancouver Institute for Social Research. Um, I just wanted to uh, pause and uh, thank uh, the people at the Org Gallery, uh, Jonah and Jonathan in particular, for being so hospitable. This absolutely would not have happened without them. And um, as many of you know, this is a uh, budgetless project, which means we have absolutely no money and no transactions take place. So they host this event out of the goodness of their hearts, and they're uh, very good hearts. Anyway, um, housekeeping issues. Um, if you haven't been here before, the bathroom is in the back, um, and there's also a water pitcher back there. Help yourselves. Um, the books in the front are for sale. Um, they're not giveaways, so if you're interested in any of them, um, please pay for them. Um, you can pay uh, Jonah or Jonathan. And um, other than that, thank you for uh, coming uh, on a beautiful summer day. Um, the word theory um, derives from a, a Greek term for uh, pilgrimage or odyssey even. And uh, you know, we've done our best to create a space that people feel like they're making a, a pilgrimage to, even on a warm summer day. And um, today will be no exception. Um, today's lecturer is going to be Ilinka Irascu um, from UBC's uh, Central Eastern Northern European Studies Program. Um, and uh, she's going to be talking about issues pertaining to the Lacanian unconscious and German media theory, if I understand correctly. No? Not even close? Okay. <laughs> I take that back. I will allow her to tell you what she's going to be discussing. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Elinka. So um, hello, and thank you, Dan, for the wonderful invitation. I already feel very much at home here. Um, I was actually going to start with a couple of disclaimers, so thank you for <laughs> introducing that. Um, I would say that, you know, the mistake, the fault is all mine. Um, first of all, because I slid in that quotation in my blurb, which suggested some kind of Lacanian reference, which is still the case. It will be there, however, not as prominent as some might think or hope. So I'm going to apologize to the Lacan fans among you. Um, I should say that this paper, or starting to think about this paper, uh, was initiated um, as, a, as a memorial, as a memorialistic event. Um, I realized that 2016, and if you know, I hadn't realized it, of course Google would have reminded me of it, uh, 2016 is a Freud year. Um, we're celebrating 150 years since um, the birth of uh, Sigismund Schlomo Freud in uh, Pribor, Freiburg, um, uh, Moravia. And May is a Freud month. Uh, this is when uh, Freud was born, May 6th. Um, I would have actually made it very close to the anniversary with my initial date. Uh, unfortunately, I had to switch, so here I am still in May, still celebrating uh, Freud's birthday, but by way of a detour. So with your permission, I will take that detour. Um, I should apologize also to the animal studies um, people among you, to the companion species people, um, because this is not, uh, against all appearances, a talk on animal studies. Um, it will be, however, a talk that features uh, one animal in particular, or a non-animal, I should say, the crocodile. Um, don't count, there will not be 13 ways of, uh, of looking at a crocodile. Definitely not the Lacanian looking at, uh, or the, you know, as, a, as opposed to the gaze. Um, I, you know, I, I, I shamelessly borrowed from Wallace Stevens, um, and that is pretty much the extent to which that analogy uh, uh, will, will take us to. So there is no, uh, no connection whatsoever between um, the poem you know so well, the 
Blackbird poem you know so well and, and this particular talk. But without further ado, let me, let me start to dig into this. <clears throat> In Le Malheur des Immortels, The Misfortunes of the Immortals, the product of the 1922 collaboration between the surrealist poet, respectively artists, Paul Éluard and Max Ernst, we find a section entitled Des Éventails Brisés, Shattered Fans. The text reads, quote, the crocodiles of today are no longer crocodiles. Where are the good old adventurers that attached minuscule bicycles and pretty eardrops of ice to your nostrils? There are no more real birds. In the evening, the taut cords on the way home did not trip anyone, but at each false obstacle, smiles cut a little deeper into the eyes of the acrobats. The dust smelled of the thunderbolt. Formerly, the good old fish wore beautiful red slippers on their fins. There are no more real water bicycles, nor microscopy, nor bacteriology. On my word, the crocodiles of today are no longer crocodiles." Unquote. In good surrealist tradition, the prose poem opens up a landscape of substitutions, associative play, overdetermination, where objects are liberated, as it were, from logic, or slip through the mesh of syntactical coherence. According to Eluard, of course, all transformations are possible. Still, the mimic tone is unmistakable, the pastiche of a lament with a classical pedigree, the nostalgic ubi sunt matrix, itself turned into the very epitome of a stock phrase that we might know from Villon's Où sont les neiges d'antan and um, up to, for instance, William Burroughs's um, journal entry exactly 20 years to this date in 1996, where the object of the lament is nothing else but the New Yorker cartoons. He goes, where are the classic New Yorker cartoons? Where are the snows of yesteryear? And the speedballs I used to know. I guess it's time for my Ovaltine and the long good night, which actually happened one year later. Burroughs died in 97. But to go back to Éluard and Ernst, <clears throat> to the extent to which the text is a collage itself, and Ernst insisted should be read that way, both in the sense of their mutual contribution and the mix of imagos it evokes, and following Ernst's understanding of collages as a manipulation of objects that produce new objects, the pseudo-nostalgic landscape deserves some unpacking. And I speak of pseudo-nostalgia, of course, in the sense uh, that you might know from Svetlana Boim, if you've read um, The Future of Nostalgia. Um, Svetlana Boim draws attention to the fact that, in fact, nostalgia is pseudo-Greek, right? So as opposed to theory, real Greek uh, nostalgia is pseudo-Greek. It's, in fact, an invention of a 17th century uh, doctor, Johannes Hofer, uh, who applied the term in his medical uh, readings to um, the longing for the motherland of displaced, various displaced people, students and servants and soldiers. As the other co-written prose poems that make up the book, Shattered Fans is accompanied by an actual collage by Ernst, meant to be viewed in tandem with the text. Here it is. <clears throat> As opposed to other images, however, as opposed to all the other images in the book, however, this particular one is unique in the semantic visual correspondence it offers. The insistent repetition of crocodiles in the text no less than four times spills over in the adjacent image. Taken separately, text and image resist reading. Together, they seem to form an overdetermined hybrid that insists to be acknowledged. I will speak more on Anne's collage technique a little bit later, but for now, this is the classical art historical reference we have. Just a few years before, 1919, this is the Anne's sort of mythology, right? Um, 1919, therefore, marks the moment when Anne's initial, initially approaches the technique, starting from reflections on 19th century illustrated journals, magazines, and catalogs. In Shattered Fans, Ernst gives us a mustache gentleman, 
right? Um, somewhere else in the misfortunes, um, uh, they talk, Eluard and, and Ernst uh, talk about uh, moustache incassable, uh, unbreakable moustaches. For those of you who have moustaches, uh, this is a quite impressive image. Um, riding a wave or a mathematical curve um, on an impossible machine. Evoking a technical user's manual illustration of a turn-of-a-century hydrocycle. Replete. If you didn't know what a hydrocycle looked like. Uh, turn-of-the-century hydrocycle replete with crank mechanism, pedals, and propeller. But in lieu of the pontoons and surfboard keeping the device afloat, there is an incapacitated crocodile. An incapacitated crocodile belly up that blocks the apparatus from actually advancing, at least in the direction suggested by the dotted lines. Ernst's paradoxical Vitruvian man of technology, arrested, moving nowhere, belies the melancholy accents the text mimics, the illo tempore of technobiological harmony of tamed sea creatures wearing the emblems of their submission to the human machine. One can hardly overlook the scriptural pastiche. We may think of Job 7.12, am I the sea or the sea monster that you set a guard over me? And incidentally, in classical Hebrew, it's the word used for uh, sea creature is tanin, crocodile. Or Job 41.2, here the Hebrew is leviathan, leviathan, right? Canst thou put a ring in his nose or bore through his jaw with a buckle? which can, in their turn, of course, these references coalesce into new references, from Hobbes' Leviathan to Melville's Moby Dick. Metaphysics and hermeneutics are flattened, however, in the bidimensional technical manual rendition of biblical references and visions of technical progress. They all come together in the emblematic use of the crocodile, the transversal key to unlocking a series of productive readings and misreadings. I speak of emblems, of course, and not symbols, since here, as elsewhere, Ernst's collages can be read along the lines traced by Walter Benjamin's Ursprung des Deutschen Trauerspiels, the origin of German drama, the Habilitations thesis from 1925 that famously advanced allegory as the key of historical reading for the Baroque, and therefore for Benjamin for modernity at large. A vision of history in fragments, in ruins, non-redemptive, imminent, that offers constant recompositions, assemblages, endless rereadings that do not coalesce into a false solution of totality. In this emblematic <clears throat> melancholy crocodile, it is this emblematic melancholy crocodile that is cited here, or as we shall see later, the crocodile as commodity from 19th century exotic travelogues. But in a sense, the crocodile has never actually been a crocodile in Western imagination, but rather a non or interspecies always traversed by misreadings, slippages, reversals, and recompositions. The medieval Latin bestiaries, and especially second family versions and beyond, as compilations that add, arrange, and modify borrowings, follow, not unlike collages, a technique of clip and paste. A 12th century manuscript produced in England around 1170, this is not it, this is a different one, but you see, I mean, the combinations are endless. You can have a look at various illustrations of illuminated manuscripts. <clears throat> this particular one I'm talking about, however, combines elements of Pliny, Isidore, and personal moral commentary in the chapter of the crocodile that reads the following. Quote, the crocodile, so called from its yellow, croqueo, color, which is a false etymology, is born in the Nile River. It is a four-footed uh, animal capable of being in land and in water. It is more than 20 cubits in length. It is armed with fierce teeth and claws and skin so hard that although a blow with a hard stone strikes its back, it does not harm it. 
Certain fishes with a saw-like crest killed a crocodile, cutting the soft parts of its belly. Now, alone among all animals, it moves its upper jaw and keeps the lower one still. Its dung can be a salve with which old and wrinkled prostitutes smear their, smear their faces and make themselves beautiful, and this is the part I like the most, until flowing sweat washes it off. <laughs> the crocodiles are a figure of the hypocrite or dissolute and greedy people who, although they are bloated by the slime of pride, stained by the corruption of righteous life and filled with the sickness of greed, yet are stern and as if very holy and are seen to move among men in conformance to the law. The upper jaw moves because in speech they show to other examples and the riches of words of the Holy Fathers while they exhibit in themselves too little of what they say, unquote. And maybe this is why you found recently, uh, for instance, in relation to Ted Cruz, um, a lot of references to crocodile tears. But you see how um, in this particular passage you have a compilation of absolutely paradoxically um, um, you know, contrarian elements and elements that, that um, belong to different registers altogether. This is precisely my point, however. It is this recombinatorial logic that prevails, and it prevails also in later monstrous readings of the crocodile allowing it to function not across time and space, but rather as an aggregate of superimposed temporalities and spatial projections. For instance, as late as 1774, in the American naturalist William Bartom's account of the alligator of St. John's, 1774, the New World animal is couched in terms of the antediluvian and archaic described, quote, as a terrible monster bellowing in the spring season. Quote, they force the water out of their throat, which falls from their mouth like a cataract and steam of vapor from their nostrils like smoke, unquote. The realist impulse is upstaged by hybrid projections and fantastical detail reinforced by biblical, again, by biblical overtones. And incidentally, uh, this is something I myself found out recently, um, the crocodile is the first animal mentioned by name in Genesis. Um, in classical Hebrew, uh, if you remember the um, Genesis 121 uh, uh, line, God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems, that those great creatures are in fact Ataninim Agdolim, which literally means the great crocodiles. Um, I might tell you a story about that later if we have time. Conversely, 15 years later, or 15 years after 1774, in the writings of Louis Claude de Saint Martin, the crocodile enters the stage of literary history as a figment of the radically new. Saint Martin's 1799, Le Crocodile, the war of good and evil, which took place during the, the reign of Louis Quinze, is nothing but an allegorical poem of the French Revolution. A crocodile bursts out of the ground, literally, one day in Paris, and proclaims itself the expression of universal matter, leading humanity to corruption and ultimately to self-destruction, as Fabian Moore has shown in an illuminating reading of the enigmatic Martinian text. In Martin's allegorical poem, the evil crocodile is vanquished without any bloodshed. Um, but as Moore points out, how is its rise and demise to be understood in light of the contemporary history of its textual production? Um, Saint-Martin uh, supposedly finished it in 92 and then published it in 99, but between 92 and 99, right, we have everything from the reign of terror to Napoleon's um, uh, first uh, expedition in Egypt. So um, in that uh, 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 trajectory, of course, history is in the making, and that which Martin denies to have had affected the original text. Something is astir in the waters, or if not, at least in the catacombs. For the Germans, witnessing the start of the 19th century and the return of restoration, the crocodile had, in a sense, stayed in Paris, 
no longer evil, but an incongruous bird, an incongruous hybrid of new and foreign, tra uh, uh, trading deadly teeth with modern sarcasm. This is pretty much the image offered in, 19, in 1834 by the liberal journalist Karl Gutzko of his contemporary Heinrich Heine, the one who got away, in part forced by censorship, resettling from Germany to revolutionary Paris in 1830. Gutzko's stark image of Germany's cultural backwaters finds its counterpart in the jealous portrayal of the modern cosmopolitan crocodile Heine, he calls him a crocodile, sipping on oysters at the mythical 19th century Parisian restaurant Rocher de Cancale, wrapped in his, quote, mockery, his irony, his silk stockings, his unbreakable skin, his sharp teeth, and his amphibian nature in water as on land, living between yes and no, unquote. And needless to say, this does not fit in the least with the reality of Heine's um, Parisian life. But with Heine as a crocodile, we are in the presence of what could be called, using a Lacanian term, however outside its context here, extimacy, extimite, and I'll come back to it. Again, not in its psychoanalytical definition, but rather in the literal sense of a blurring of the lines between the intimate and the exterior, of what is inside and what is exterior. Heine, the Protestant Jew, writing from his Parisian exile and self-exile in German, about Germany, and for a German newspaper. The 19th century is the century of extimate crocodiles. We find them everywhere in different forms and formats. At one end of the register, there are, of course, the Quincy's, opium-inoculated fantasies of coachmen with crocodile heads giving way to terror visions in which, quote, sometimes I escaped and found myself in Chinese houses. All the feet of the tables and sofas soon became instinct with life. The abominable head of the crocodile and his leering eyes looked out at me, multiplied into 10,000 repetitions, and I stood loathing and fascinated, unquote. But it is not merely the familiar analogies here that give way to exotic projections. The exterior violently folds back into the utmost expression of intimacy. Quote, again, I heard gentle voices speaking to me, and instantly I woke. In, it was broad noon, and my children were standing hand in hand at my bedside, come to show me their colored shoes or new frocks. No experience was so awful to me and at the same time so pathetic, unquote. And at the other end of the register, we have the Gogolian pre-surrealist tale of Fyodor Dostoevsky, the crocodile, the crocodile, in which a Russian bureaucrat is swallowed whole by a crocodile exhibited at the St. Petersburg arcades. But do not fear, he survives. Uh, yes, he does. Uh, in fact, finds it quite comfortable, quite roomy in the belly of the beast, continuing to speak and propose reforms from inside, ventriloquizing, while becoming a commercial success, an attraction of the arcades to the satisfaction of the German owner of the animal. Here we find Dostoevsky at its most, at its most political, attacking liberal reform and foreign investment at once at the heart of a space where colonial fantasies and capitalist dreams meet, the attractions of the arcades, the, quote, exterior turned interior, as Benjamin would define it in Das Passagenwerk and the Arcades Project. If these, then, and other potential references are part of the impossible interpretive machine cited by Eluard and Ernst, we have not yet spoken of the most implausible of all. The Cliff Note version of the story that I'm talking about, published under the title Inexplicable in the popular English periodical Strand in 1917, is provided by no one else but Sigmund Freud. And I'm quoting from The Uncanny. In the midst of the isolation of wartime, a number of the English Strand magazine fell into my hands, and 
Amongst other not very interesting matter, I read a story about a young married couple who move into a furnished flat in which there is a curiously shaped table with carvings of crocodiles on it. Towards evening, they begin to smell an intolerable and very typical odor that pervades the whole flat. Things begin to get in their way and trip them up in the darkness. You probably hear the De Quincey reference here, the muted, commercialized, uh, popularized De Quincey reference. They seem to see a vague form gliding up the stairs. In short, we are given to understand that the presence of the table ca causes ghostly crocodiles to haunt the place or that the wooden monsters come to life in the dark or something of that sort. This is what I like about this, this, this part of uh, Freud's commentary. He sort of gives up on explaining. Um, it was a thoroughly silly story, he concludes, but the uncanny feeling it produced was quite remarkable. Thus, Freud. The account of the ghostly crocodiles closes the second part of the essay on the uncanny and is suddenly inserted between a statement about the blurring of fantasy and reality and a closing paragraphs about neurotics assessments of the uncanniness of female genitalia. The crocodiles, it seems, function in this context as a reminiscence of the vagina dentata and carry with them the anxiety which, of course, we know is only a concealed desire of being swallowed back into the maternal body. In an image that Lacan would later employ in a discussion about fusional cannibalism from Seminar 17, the mother is, after all, quote, the big crocodile in the mouth of which we all are. Yet, the pair of jaws that open menacingly upon the characters in the strand tale do not belong to some universal archaic motherland turned strange in the process of repression. Something that Freud entirely leaves out is the intervention of a third character in the story. In Inexplicable, the family friend of the unassuming couple, described as an experienced world traveler, recognizes the stench that pervades the Victorian household as identical with the poisonous smell of the New Guinea alligator swamp where his beloved companion had found his death. The dark waters of the colonial uncanny suddenly flood the scene. In 1917, in the midst of the Great War, with Germany and Britain having already lost their territorial claims on the South Pacific Island, the narrative upon which Freud stumbles is traversed by the specters of death, combat, and imperial dismemberment. Following Elensik Su's dictum that the 1919 essay of The Uncanny is itself, quote, a strange theoretical novel, shot through with suspicion, hesitation, and disquieting strangeness, we may thus begin to read the passage as a ghostly return to the timely questions that Freud had raised in Zeitgemäßes über Krieg und Tod, Thoughts on the Times of War and Death, um, which he had published just a few years before, 1915. I speak of returning ghosts, or even returning crocodiles, not merely because in the aftermath of the war we find Freud speculating on the peacetime ego and, his and its parasitic double, the war ego, which result in the production of neurotic response. But I also speak about it because the specters that I'm invoking here are actually made of flesh and blood. They pertain to Freud's own Viennese household in the Bergstrasse and are called Martin Oliver and Ernst. When the sons, Freud's sons, return unharmed from the front to a home which is no longer located within an empire, the reflections from the timely essay from 1915 have themselves turned unheimlich, extimate, uncanny. Let us remember that in those Zeitgemäße meditations, those timely meditations, Freud was engaging with the sense of estrangement induced by the reality of warfare from the position of a spectator. And I quote, the individual who is not himself a combatant and so not a wheel in the gigantic machinery of war. Unquote. In other words, from the position of an impotent paterfamilias left home to face the possibility of the death of his sons. Freud continues, when the death has fallen, and I'm highlighting the, um, the temporal um, um, no, um, construction here, when death has fallen on some person whom we love, 
a parent or a partner in marriage, a brother or a sister, a child, child, a dear friend, Freud declares, our hopes, our pride, our happiness lie in the grave with him. We will not be consoled. We will not find the other one's place. We behave then as if we belong to the tribe of the Astra, who must die too when those die whom they love. The tribe of the Astra, who must die too when those die whom they love. I'm highlighting this because these are not precisely Heinrich Heine's words in the poem that Freud appears to cite. In Heine's Der Astra, the declaration he uh, 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 cites, he appears to cite, Ich heiße Mohammed und mein Stamm sind jene Asra, welche sterben, wenn sie lieben. My name is Mohammed and my tribe is the Asra who die when they love. Is voiced by a slave who, in confessing his forbidden love to the princess he adores, signs his death sentence as well. In other words, Freud has killed the Sultan's daughter. In his rendition of the story, by declaring her to be the object of his love, the slave has, in a dialectical move, also made her a subject unto death. By way of a detour, Freud has brought the tale to Vienna, where the news about the death of the beloved Sultan's son might strike home at any moment. Yet it has not happened, right? But he talks about it as if it had and in a sense, it is the father who has consigned them to that fate as the Astra, who in his words fantasizes about the death of the imperial daughter as an event that has already occurred. If Freud insists on the necessity to face annihilation, quote, death will no longer be denied, we are forced to believe in him. That existence is charged with the weight of paternal guilt the ambiguity of feeling resulting from the conflict between one's immortal unconscious demanding in order to sustain itself the sacrifice of the other and, on the other side, on the other hand, the civilized claim of fatherly love. What is then at stake in the homecoming of the sons that have already been sacrificed from the grips of combat is an instance of uncanny revisitation from beyond a symbolic grave. The once familiar and familial that our unconscious has objected to death, but that nevertheless, this is a quote from Zizek, does not want to stay dead, but returns again and again to pose a threat to the living. Certainly, the fantasy of paternal guilt does not open a new file in the Freudian archive. We may remember the anxiety dreams from the Traumdeutung, from the interpretation of dreams, especially the burning child or the return of the son from the front with a bandaged face, which was incidentally added as a footnote precisely in 1919. But such images of displacement and condensation have, with the war coming to an end, taken a quite literal turn. In a reversal of the classic Shakespearean tale, Hamlet's ghosts have come back to haunt the murderous father. And what form would such a return assume? One possible answer might be provided by considering the fate of yet another returning son, who, before serving as a soldier in the German army, had himself been acquainted with Freud's writings as a student in abnormal psychology at the University of Bonn. I am referring, of course, to Max Ernst. While Breton and the other surrealists were only later introduced to the translated versions of Freud's texts, Ernst, Ernst's first-hand access to the German original can be dated back even prior to his Dada period, making him into one of the important disseminators of Freudian ideas among the French avant-garde circles. But without going much further into the tumultuous relationship between psychoanalysis and surrealism, what I would like to speculate on is rather something different. A possible scenario in which Ernst, the reader of Freud, discovers himself as the sacrificed son recovering his post-war identity through the figure of an uncanny return to the paternal home. And if that wasn't clear, I'm going to clarify it by looking at um, uh, a painting. <clears throat> so to clarify, let us look for a second at the famous Pietà ou Révolution la Nuit from 1923. 
Art historians have discussed the links between that enigmatic portrayal of an all-male biblical mourning scene and the Kirikos child brain from 1914, with particular reference, again, to the mustached character as a figure of repressed sexuality. But Anse's painting also quite clearly leaves room for the staging of a self-referential move. This is clearly a self-portrait, um, if you have ever seen uh, uh, pictures of Max Ernst. So a self-portrait in a recognizable pose, namely the dead body of Christ removed from the cross after crucifixion. The image calls for multiple games of condensation and displacement, with the bourgeois gentleman in a fitted suit and hat as the virgin mother, but also as God the Father giving his one and only son in an ultimate sacrificial gesture. We are reminded as well of Freud's dream about the return of his son from the front with a bandaged face. Right there, the bearded man in the background. <clears throat> but more importantly, one is struck by the filial artist character himself. A self-portrait in a strangely comfortable cross-legged pose that might simultaneously evoke paralysis or impotence, the stern look, in short, a presence that cannot and will not be denied. One may read the return of the sun as a long-awaited response to the primal scene of paternal killing recorded in Anst, recorded in Anst's childhood memories. Um, uh, uh, child, uh, um, uh, Anst, uh, speaking about his, um, his childhood memories, records uh, the scene that leads to this, that leads to this picture uh, being uh, taken, itself a collage. Philip Ernst, the father of Ernst, an amateur painter, ein Sonntagskünstler, he calls him, transforming the act of filial transgression, the child had run away from home, into a picture of adoration, sacrifice, young Max portrayed as child Jesus floating on a cloud surrounded by angels. So in the Pietà configuration, the son, doomed to return again and again through cycles of death and rebirth, has, in other words, turned the uncanny into an act imbued with political significance. Not the past haunting the present, but rather the present haunting the patriarchal past, the moral order of the father with its perpetual reinscription of retroactive effects. This is precisely the impulse that had animated Anne's series of collage novels in the 20s and 30s in continuation to the misfortunes of the immortals. This is one example <clears throat> from La Femme Sans Tête. Sans, of course, uh, here again a pun, uh, hundred and without, so a headless woman, hundred heads and headless. From 1929, Werner Spies and Hal Foster have most notably pointed to the variety of sources used and reorchestrated in the construction of images that make up the content of these enigmatic anti-narratives. 19th century salon paintings, food catalogs, encyclopedias, scientific journals, melodrama novels, often found in the literary equivalent of the flea market, namely in the used bookstores and among the magazine stalls among this, along the Seine. And it is Foster again who has convincingly discussed them as an application of the Freudian uncanny. Uh, uh, Foster talks about Victorian homes, distanced in time and dislocated by the collages, traumatic tableaus in which the historically outmoded, here in the Benjaminian sense, enact the psychologically repressed at the level of representation, etc., etc., interiors with stage quite literally primal scenes and castration anxieties. Speaking of these collages, Ernst calls them, quote, reminiscences of my first books, a resurgence of childhood memories. But in making that pronouncement, he does not act as the analyst interpreting the childhood fantasies of the patient's son. In the interpretation of dreams, Freud, we might remember, was recounting his own infantile anxiety dreams, only to then associate them with recollections from an illustrated Philipson Bible and resolving them via the verdict of castration fantasies, uh, Freud analyzing himself as a child and then solving um, uh, uh, in, in the analysis um, a larger uh, problem, giving it sort of you know, uh, uh, a nice round ending 
On the contrary, in Ernst Collages, that reading and those illustrations are endlessly undone, reassembled, recombined. Paradoxically, then, it is precisely in their gesture of resistance to interpretation that Ernst images do justice to the anxious explanatory attempts from the uncanny. That is to say, it is in that text that the son, Ernst, might have discovered what Sixou calls the cracking surfaces of the paternal master narrative and recognized its uncanny fictionality, a scientific narrative which, in which demonstration gives way to doubt. Where, then, should we locate the uncanny, the disquieting strangeness, as the title was translated into French for the first time in 1933, around the time when Anse was conceiving his last collage novel, Une semaine de bonté, A Week of Kindness? Has the unhomely turned upon the patriarchal outdated, the flaunting of obsolescence that Benjamin signaled as the archfigure of surrealist presentation and history? and that Ants returns to again and again and again in the clippings and cuttings from 19th century popular novels. If the father figures of the past are haunted by the multiplying effects of guilt and repression, it appears to be the task of the sons to come back to that unhomely scene to which they have been relegated and dwell on it, or rather dwell in it, in order to collect their debt. Les crocodiles d'à présent ne sont plus des crocodiles. The crocodiles of the present are no longer crocodiles. Indeed, they are not. But in their new form, they have nevertheless returned, reassembled, refragmented from the crevices of extimacy to poke around the interstices of the past, never letting it sleep. Thank you. Told you I was going to bore everybody. Or are being mauled by crocodiles. Yes. Sure, of course. Um, yeah, I should say that I'm actually not using it, as I said, in the way in which Lacan was, was um, interested in it. And, and Lacan really needs to use it, as, as, as Dola points out, right, in the article that we were briefly talking about, uh, because, as I mentioned, when the first, the first time the uncanny, the Sonheimliche, was translated into French, the disquieting strangeness really is not the greatest title to go with it. Um, so, uh, you know, this very heavy, rudimentary translation needed to find um, kind of a more witty and, you know, springy um, 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 translation in, in Lacan's own rendition. And Lacan comes up with this fantastic uh, coinage. Um, extimacy, extimité, which combines, really shrinks, contracts um, the exterior and the intimacy in one, and in that points precisely to the core of what um, das Unheimliche is in Freud, much, much better than, um, than the uncanny does in English. I mean, the canny, you are those among you who are native English speakers, I'm not, please explain to me what the canny is, but definitely not some kind of reference to home and to the intimate realm, right? Um, whereas extimité has precisely that uh, capacity. Um, so in that it comes the closest, I think, to Freud's um, understanding of, of, uh, of das Unheimliche. Here, however, I am sort of taking it in the very literal uh, a sense to show um, that there is a certain change that happens in the 19th century, let's say, you know, after the French Revolution, um, where uh, this, this non-animal kind of enters um, not just, 
you know, uh, uh, um, in our proximity, but, but enters, you know, under our skin, so to speak, and, and sort of, and, 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 and messes with things from there. And I think that in this sense, also Eluard and, um, and Ernst were, were using it. I don't know if that answers the question. Yes. Yes. More, right. So more. Yeah. And the, and the second question is sort of a naive question. Is this uh, the relationship between the crocodile and the alligator in this imaginary? Oh, yeah. Mm. 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 Right. Of course. Of course. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a great question, of course, and it always comes up, and, you know, you ask yourself this. But I have to say that, you know, just as um, the case was in the medieval bestiaries where, you know, all kinds of animals are fit together um, into these hybrid forms, I would say the same happens uh, apart from a very, very strict, limited, you know, scientific domain with the alligator and and the crocodile. I mean, obviously, in Bartom's uh, rendition of the alligator of St. John, there's, you know, your sea monster, the generic sea monster, which then finds all these different niches, right? And then translations, which are themselves confusing, because as I said, and this come to come back to, to Genesis, um, according to some sources, um, but don't quote me on that, right? According to some sources, um, the why is the crocodile mentioned? Why is tanin, taninin, mentioned in, in Genesis as the, as the only animal mentioned by name, according to these sources, um, it is um, because of its very rich um, uh, history, the, 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 the animal's rich religious history, and therefore in Genesis it is claimed among the creations of God along with the others. So there is a specific political, if you want, uh, religious uh, uh, political um, um, importance, relevance, to claiming the crocodile uh, to the, um, you know, to the bag of creations of God and not leaving it to doubt whether, you know, it kind of slips through the crevices of some kind of pre-biblical history. So that is, you know, what I was going to talk about, but just briefly, um, of course, um, please go home and check on that and let me know if it's actually true. From the Egyptians? I'm sorry? From the Egyptians? Yeah, <laughs> among others. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, there were some, yes, uh, Rowan and then Melanie, or the other way around, whatever. Uh, Shoot, guys. <laughs> Mm. Right. <laughs> I was kind of hoping to create it that way. I mean, I, I hope it didn't look so. Well, it, it depends, of course, how you see collages. I mean, I used to hate the fact that, um, you know, I, um, I, I, I taught German for a year um, as an undergrad, and um, uh, at the end of the year, first year German, right, they had to uh, put together a collage of what Germany meant for them. And, you know, you had your panels with, you know, sausage and beer can and whatnot stuck together and voila, right? This is like my image of Germany. Uh, horror, horror, like throughout, right? And this is, you know, a very <laughs> a kind of a rudimentary understanding, unfortunately, very widespread understanding of a collage. But of course, collage has a very uh, um, um, you know, serious pedigree in modernism, and um, Ans is definitely one of its you know proponents. And um, as I mentioned in the beginning, I mean the the, the principle that he works under is um, the creation of new objects out of 
old objects, right? So there's always the, the assemblages, the assemblages of objects um, function like apparatuses, right? Like producing other effects and producing other meaning. And in this particular case, of course, they have a political uh, motivation, right? I mean, these are all Victorian products, consumerist products. These are all, you know, food catalogs and, you know, um, dime novels and whatnot. So these are all, you know, the same materials that Benjamin was using to assemble his own collage, which was the Passage Web, which was the arcades uh, project. So in that, you know, putting together and twisting, right, the, um, the, the, the bits and pieces, right, um, you create new meaning and allow it to speak for itself, not to just, you know, impose kind of your own theory on it, but allow it to speak through these, you know, uh, fragments. I'm sorry? Getting around reification or getting around yeah, to reification? Getting around reification where these objects kind of are these themselves and kind of produce some kind of thing. Just don't even display. They see themselves, I guess. Like, uh, you know, it's very hard to kind of extricate the Marxist reading out of it. You know, um, it's. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's sure, we can uh, speak in a very Michel Serre kind of way, right, about the claim of objects to be recognized as not essences but something else. But this is not the case for Ernst. This is not the case for Benjamin, right? I mean, this is, they are just faced with this, you know, with this rubble, rubble of objects, right? These, these stuffed rooms full of things, right? That are all, you know, part of this world that they're trying to untangle um, and um, understand in their own means, but understand themselves at the same time as their own effects. So, yeah, the words only get to speak through these new recompositions, yes. In themselves, they remain kind of muted, right? In themselves, right, the comfortable, the gentleman remains comfortably seated in his chair, but this is, you know, at the moment when he's like, you know, rushed or pushed through, right, uh, 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 hit by the waves of, 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 of a historical change that is only kind of created how? By readjusting, by repositioning elements, not, you know, by kind of staging the revolution, right? It's a, it's a revolution from bits and pieces that belong actually to that world. That, that world. It, it's not like comes from, from somewhere exterior. It's an extimate revolution. Yeah. Melanie. Well, you know, just to give you a very brief example, if I remember this correctly, at the Crystal Palace exhibition in London, right, you had this gigantic um, reproduction of an interior of a dinosaur. Like This is the moment when dinosaurs had been um, discovered, 19th century, right, um, that, feast, that, that held a feast, an entire, you know, table full of, you know, diners. So there is a very interesting relationship that the 19th century has to these animals, um, these recom recombinations that I was talking about. But in a sense, as I said, like the crocodile is never really a crocodile, right? Has never been a crocodile. And when you flip through, right, the, the visual representations from, let's say, mm, the 10th century onwards, right, um, 
you find that um, there's always some kind of, you know, intervention, innovation, something that, you know, either the imagination of whoever illustrates that manuscript at that moment, right, or something is a reinterpretation of a reinterpretation of a tradition. So, but definitely the term itself, crocodile, right, I mean, it kind of takes over and kind of subsumes other meanings. So, on the one hand, there's the snake, and that's a little bit different, right? But the crocodile holds a lot of, carries a lot of weight because it has all of these, all of these readings that, um, you know, allow it to move and to function in different, um, different uh, uh, registers, as, as, as you've seen in that, in that section from, from the 12th century bestiary, you have, um, you know, a moral reading, right, um, kind of a typological reading, um, uh, something akin to a zoological, you know, minute description, then, you know, a reference to the classics, and so on and so forth, plus the prostitutes that is, you know, that's from Pliny, actually, the prostitutes and the, you know, Makeup, crocodile dung makeup. Yes. You mentioned crocodile tears. Could you could you speak yeah. up? Sorry. Um, my question was. Mm. Which one? I, I don't know it. I have to write it down. <laughs> is it is it good for a four-year-old? Children's book is still is that still part of the children? I am not familiar with it. I am definitely going to be curious to look at it. Um, first, I have to really kind of um, yeah. But of course, I mean that that makes me think, for instance, of Babar, right? All the colonial fantasies in Babar where, um, you know, the elephant goes to Paris, and uh, crocodiles are also featured there. Um, I don't know a lot about, uh, you know, the 20th, 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 I didn't even think about it. Of course, it would be a, a, an interesting topic altogether, but I would say this. I would say that there is definitely in the, you know, Mention the repeated mention um, in American on the political stage, in American political stage of the crocodile and the crocodile tears, definitely, you know, some kind of a uh, harking back to the 19th century. I mean, in a sense, American politics is still stuck in the 19th century somehow. And I'm thinking particularly of a cartoon, a political, well, you know, a racist cartoon a racist religious cartoon from the 19th century, um, um, you know, uh, um, kind of stressing, highlighting the, 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 the terror, the anxiety over the arrival, the en masse arrival of, of the Irish um, to America. Um, and they are represented as, I'm sorry, I don't have it here, as, you know, these... Um, uh, 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 
Of course, Catholics and Irish, right, they are kind of blend into one image. And as they swim toward the American coast, um, you see their, whatever they're called, the big Catholic, whatever, cone-like, right, like uh, headgear, right, to kind of um, swoop down and to look pretty much like the open jaws of a crocodile, you know, coming to, you know, terrify American children, good old Protestant American children. Um, but I have to think about that, and that's probably a whole different, you know, um, a different uh, uh, type of, of, of critical intervention. Uh, the 19th century is important um, to me because it was important to, as I said, the protagonists um, that I have been, um, you know, uh, presenting here. And the 1919 seems to be this 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 year that that binds them together, right? 1919. So many things happen in 1919. There are a lot of books written on 1913, right? Um, and I wonder if the um, when those hundred, um, uh, those those hundred years uh, 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 happen, the centennial happens. There will be a book on on the uncanny. I think it's bound to happen, right? So get on it. Write those chapters. Mm-hmm. You're thinking about it. You know, it was, yeah, I'll tell you exactly how it happened. I mean, it's, it's a, you know, very simple. I just don't, I, I, I am a, I guess, a very pedantic reader, um, and um, I, I like details to the point of, you know, getting obsessed over details. And I read for the hundredth time, I don't know, I was reading The Uncanny, and then I kept getting struck by the fact that, you know, this, I don't know more about about this this strand this little strand um, story, and I found it. I looked through an archive um, of of the Strand magazine from 1917. I found it, and then I thought this is incredible because there are all these components that are missing here, right? And Freud focuses only on one. In the meantime, there are several people who have pointed out to this. I mean, it's not as if you know I've discovered the moon. But there's one thing that I think I haven't seen before. Uh, let me know if you have, because I'm thinking of maybe, you know, working a little bit more on this and sending it off. Um, but um, I, I don't think I've, meant, I've, I've noticed anybody, you know, making a point out of this, um, out of this um, link uh, between the um, the. the the present, well, I mean, the, you know, the, the colonial referent that then kind of goes back into, folds back into the reading of castration, right? Um, I mean, why would it have been hidden from, from there? Why? Um, it's, it's a question of, of course, rudimentary, in a very rudimentary fashion, psychoanalyzing Freud. Um, and, you know, we actually don't need to be geniuses to do that. I mean, it's right there in the text. He mentions it several times. You know, he talks about, you know, this is, of course, I'm doing it now. Of course, this is an important moment. I mean, the war is written all over that text, right? And what happens during the war? It is the moment when his children are at war, and as I 
suggest, right, they are, when he writes about them, he writes about them as already dead, right? Only for them to return and him to write the uncanny, which is kind of funny. Twisted, funny. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so that's how it happened. I mean, it's just, you know, so one thing led to another. And, and, and then, you know, from there, it's, it's pretty clear when you look at the, the cultural history of crocodiles. I don't know if something like that exists, although it should. Uh, it would actually be impossible, I would think, because it has, as I said, so many ramifications. And it looks like, you know, whenever crocodiles appear, they are, in fact, um, you know, um, these, these bricolages of, of, of other, um, other um, creatures and other... Um, technologies and 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 other you know um, logics at work. So, yeah. What's your take on these uh, Egyptian torsos, human torsos with animal heads on them? <laughs> no idea. <laughs> no idea. I have no take on it whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, sorry. I mean, I am, you know, a comparatist um, trying to, you know, pretend I know things about the 19th century, but I'll definitely won't venture, you know, like Napoleon and the pyramids. <laughs> so, yeah. Mm. Thank you.